During every humanitarian disaster, whether it's a war, a pandemic, or an extreme weather event, pregnant mothers and their babies are hit particularly hard. More frequent and more intense climate disasters, the result of decades of inaction on climate change, make conditions particularly dire for pregnant mothers and their babies around the globe. These risks are increasingly apparent in the U.S., particularly for mothers of color. And disasters spawned by climate change are getting worse. California is now experiencing its second largest fire, coming on the heels of the state's most severe wildfire season in modern history. On the other side of the country, meteorologists expect dramatic hurricane activity this season, following a season with the most named storms on record and with the threat of climate change and pregnancy-related mortality rate increasing in the U.S., there's no time to lose. That was Emmy Mediate and Neil Shaw reading from their first opinion, A Perfect Storm, Climate Disasters Are Magnifying the U.S.'s Maternal Health Crisis. Emmy works for an organization focused on finding solutions to support flood-affected communities in the U.S. Neil is an OBGYN physician, chief medical officer of Maven Clinic, and an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT, and I'm here with human resources expert Emerson Foster. He's the head of HR for the U.S. business unit at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Emerson, I know you're committed to fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion at Takeda and across the biopharmaceutical industry. Could you talk a little bit about what industry leaders can do to advance a more inclusive environment? Thanks, Angus. At Takeda, building and maintaining trust is critical to our culture of inclusion, learning, and curiosity. We do this in a number of ways, from enabling a workforce that's as diverse as the communities and patients we serve, to ensuring employees can live their purpose and speak up while confident that others will listen. Establishing that foundation of trust can help us achieve greater health equity, and balanced representation. It's clear we're making important progress, though our journey has just begun. Thanks, Emerson. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion. STAT's platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you both. Thanks, Pat. Great to be here. So it doesn't look on the surface that you two ordinarily work together. How did you get connected? Emmy, you take this. Sure. So Neil and I have have kind of crossed paths in a number of different ways. I became interested in a lot of the work that he's done on maternal health and disparities. Um, we first, I think, actually crossed paths when I was at Planned Parenthood, if that's if that's correct, uh, Neil. And then since then, have have just had a shared interest in thinking about the the issues that are impacting uh, women and birthing people, but particularly from my world, from the angle of climate disasters and thinking about the impacts. That disasters are having on birthing people. And, you know, I'm a little bit older than Emmy, just a little bit, but I, I'm just totally blown away by her um, 
perspective and her energy to making a world a better place. And I think we did bond around our interest in reproductive health. But, you know, um, Emmy uh, has since been really on the front lines of trying to think about how we address climate change in our country and was really persistent with this idea, actually. This was an idea where uh, Emmy brought me around to it. And as we really started to think about it together, I became um, increasingly compelled by the opportunity that we have to draw together the intersections between you know, public health, climate change, and really maternal health uh, and what it means for the most vulnerable among us. Emmy, you used the term birthing people, which, which aggravates some stat readers uh, to no end. We get lots of comments. Why use that term? Yeah, so, you know, Neil, I'll let you also take this one, but I'll, I'll just start by saying, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community myself, um, it's incredibly important to me that when we're thinking about the birthing process, the parenthood process, the process of starting a family, that we're thinking about it in an inclusive way. Uh, it's something that my wife and I, as we're thinking about starting our family, are always paying attention to. And so for, for those in my community, I think it's really important to use that language to to include uh, all kinds of folks who might be giving birth. I think Emmy said it best. We made a conscious, Stat made a conscious decision to switch to using that kind of language, and uh, the comments just never cease. Well, I, you know, I think there are agendas around terminology and how we think about just social progress at this moment in our country more generally. But, you know, I think um, there are a lot of people who've fought really hard for women's rights and for visibility and recognition of women. And I understand that perspective as well. And I, I think that, you know, our intention, and I really appreciate Stat's intention in saying birthing people in some ways at this moment is to be a little bit provocative because it's not what people are used to hearing. And there are times where we want to be just really thoughtful about pushing people to think about the many routes that people can take to starting and growing their family. I, I think that really sets the stage for what we'll be talking about today. Before jumping into the connection between climate change and the health of pregnant people and newborns, I'd just like to talk for a minute about what people are calling the maternal health crisis in the U.S. Neil, can you just give us an overview about that? An American today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother was, which is a shocking statistic and was really shocking in 2018 when it started to become part of the headlines that we were seeing. And part of the reason why we didn't know until 2018 is we weren't even really systematically tracking maternal mortality in our country until relatively recently. Um, and again, it comes down to you know, inclusion at the end of the day and how we prioritize the needs of people who are in this phase of life. But there's something about moms or maternal health where you know, we kind of expect moms to put their own well-being last, to put their families first, it's just just norm across our society. And so, you know, moms just kind of have to suck it up. We take moms for granted. And that's reflected in uh, so many parts of our society, including the fact that we were not systematically tracking maternal mortality in our country in a consistent way across all 50 states until very, very recently. And then undergirding all of this, and this is really, really important, is that the only way to understand that statistic is uh, widening inequality in our country. And that's true across geography, across gender, and across race. So if you're Black in our country, you're three to four times more likely to die. That's an amazing statistic. Emmy, were you seeing some of that in your work at Planned Parenthood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see how much harder it is for 
women and individuals who are in racial and ethnic minority groups to access any type of, of health care. Specifically, when I was at Planned Parenthood, I saw that was true for reproductive care. Neil just described how we know that's true for thinking about maternal health care. I think we see that across the board. And we see it not just in the health access space, but also if we're looking at the environment space, you see these same kinds of groups who are facing compounded discrimination and inequities. And that's where you get this kind of piling on, if you will, of the impacts um, of these effects of, of inequities on these particular groups. And it's, uh, it's, it's horrible to see that there is a kind of systematic, uh, consistent numbers, no matter which issue or kind of issue in health you're looking at. And so you could, it, it sounds like you could extend that beyond climate change and maternal health. You could take that down the road and see similar things happening. I'm hearing you both nod your heads here. Yeah, yeah, you're hearing us nod our heads. I forgot <laughs> that we're on a podcast for a second. But you know, the, the thing is that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. There are the interesting studies that look at how longevity changes on a subway or a, a, a T-ride in Boston. You can go from Roxbury to Beacon Hill and your life expectancy increases as you go towards Beacon Hill. And the same thing I've heard happens in parts of New York and parts of other Chicago where I grew up. Yeah. And I think that's what's so striking about this. It's like, that's not biology where we put our subways and where we don't. Um, that is redlining. <laughs> that is a right. public policy that was intentional. Emmy, Emmy's um, paragraph that she read at the, at the jump of this podcast it, about how during every disaster, it can be a war, it can be a pandemic, it can be a climate disaster. Moms suffer disproportionately. And it's because maternal health is really a bellwether for the well-being of society as a whole. And that is also why every type of injustice in our society shows up in the well-being of moms, whether it's geographic injustice or racial injustice. So in a sense, you're taking this canary in the coal mine, this vulnerable time in a person's life, and you're pitting it against some problem. And the problem is going to have an effect because the time is so vulnerable. Is that sort of it? That's my take. I mean, Emmy, I mean, I think this is part of why um, Emmy is a deep expert in climate change and me as a person in maternal health uh, resonate so much. But, you know, what is the purpose of society? Not to get too deep, but it's like to take care of us during vulnerable moments. And the most vulnerable person in America right now is probably a pregnant black woman in the Mississippi Delta. And, and just to take that point further, Neil, I mean, and then thinking about what is the impact that that black mother, black pregnant woman in the Mississippi Delta is likely experiencing, it's highly likely she's going to be experiencing a flood event at some point this year and or last year or is continuing to recover, might not have housing that is able to sustain the impacts of that flooding. So you're that's where the piling of these these sort of vulnerabilities come into play as we're seeing the increase in climate disasters and, and the effects those are having on, on that group. Are some kinds of climate-related disasters worse for pregnant people than other types? I mean, there, there, there actually are so many types these days, and we mostly focus on, on hurricanes and flooding and fires. But, you know, there's sandstorms. There's, there's all sorts of things that are affecting people. Is, is one type of these disasters worse for pregnant people than others? Yeah, you know, I think yes and no. I'm I'm also thinking of the winter storm that that 
was experienced uh, in Texas. I'm also thinking of the the derecho, which is the the windstorm experienced in the Midwest. Um, in my mind, I, I think all of those have the same impact in terms of putting uh, pregnant people and and their infants at risk of not having access to certain uh, care, not having an ability to reach the care that they need. But I do think that there's a particularly bad impact from wildfires and flooding that you mentioned. And this is where some of the data and the science comes in. We know the impacts of the particulate matter that happens as a result of wildfires and the impact that that has on pregnant people. We also have data to back up the very real impacts uh, during and after flooding in terms of the impacts on pregnant people and their children. So that's where we've, we have data on those two types of disasters that we know is is particularly bad, not just because it's a disruption in care, but also because of the the actual after effects. Um, I think we still have to study some of the other disasters and and how they're impacting uh, these these populations and and impacting vulnerable populations. There's no doubt that there's there's an impact, but I think the research is is still developing and for some of those. You know, it's interesting the with with floods, hurricanes, um, wildfires, they're top of mind for people. And so, you know, when, when Emmy was thinking about this idea and really nudging me and was like, we've been thinking about this for months, we need to get this done. You know, know, she was thinking about the timeliness of the UN, I think the intergovernmental climate change panel report Mm -hmm. that had come out. And what we did not anticipate was that, you know, California would be experiencing its second biggest wildfire in history and the smoke would carry to Boston, (laughs) right? Like there was a day where we all walked outside in Boston. We're like, is that what that is? And that um, Ida, that weekend, right? And, and it's been interesting to see the how much this piece has actually resonated with people because we're actively experiencing these things. I had to educate myself, I'll be totally honest with you, about the impacts on pregnancy. of, um, and, and, and through that process, realized that there's a whole journal of reproductive toxicology. Like this is a field <laughs> that as a maternal health expert and Harvard professor and practicing OBGYN, had not really been on my radar. Uh, and, and through educating myself, um, you know, really um, became quite cern- concerned, not just around the biological plausibility of all this, but just like what we know and are not acting on when it comes to, uh, you know, living in a time where air quality index is part of the weather report in, in a significant part of our country. And, you know, the, the impact on people is potentially generations when you're talking about pregnancy and reproduction. I think it's something, too, that we're seeing more and more of, of of kind of drawing these connections. Um, I think at some point it's going to become inevitable that we're drawing these connections between maternal health and climate change and some of these other issue areas as we're we're seeing. And this is, you know, what I would love to see in the disaster space is a real intersectional approach, you know, not just thinking about how are we responding to this specific disaster and we're working in our lane, but, you know, how can we utilize the other expertise that's around and understand how we're meeting the needs of these these key populations? I, I think and I hope we'll see more and more of that as we realize that these these vulnerabilities are are adding up. And, you know, my, my experience of that has been um, I was an OBGYN and thought that I gave pretty good care as an OBGYN and was utterly unaware of this maternal health crisis. Um, and then wanted to learn about it and understood that there's no way to really um, explain the statistics that we laid out without seeing it through the lens of racial justice. And then had to understand that within my brick and mortar healthcare system, my ability to impact that is actually quite limited. 
and had to understand that like, you know, what you were saying, Pat, about like, you know, taking the tea or just traveling from Dorchester to Beacon Hill. And that, um, and then, you know, in my own sort of professional journey, uh, moved from being a full-time professor to, you know, um, Maven Clinic, where uh, necessarily I've got to think about delivering care with geography out of the equation, because geography is such a constraint in providing people with the care they deserve. Healthcare used to be this really limited thing. It, it sounds like it's just expanding, you know, like the galaxy almost in terms of the things that healthcare providers really need to know and think about. But it's tough because medical school, nursing school, any other healthcare professional school, you can only cover so much. How do you how do you fit something like racial justice and environmental concerns into the education of healthcare professionals? I'm interested in Emmy's take, actually, as somebody who is not um, didn't go through the medical school education process, but is an expert in the context of the people that we're trying to take care of. But I think you know fundamentally, um, what we need to do is create. Um, trust in our healthcare systems at this moment. And the way to do that, one of the biggest lessons for me in the last year and a half of what we've all lived through is that part of trust is producing equitable outcomes. And part of it is how you produce those outcomes. Absolutely. And, you know, I would just say, I think there's, I, I've seen more of a push among the the sort of healthcare workers and folks in the, the health world that I know, but would love to see the push uh, to to kind of engaging with the community because the people who know that this is true and have known this far before we wrote our our first opinion, by the way, are those folks who are on the front lines, the communities of color that are already more likely to live near coal plants and have been at risk of disasters and have been experiencing these impacts and and have historically been been neglected by by the government and, and in relief plans, as well as um, by the healthcare system. I mean, there's a, there's a checkered history there for sure. And so I think kind of really listening and grounding those experiences, whether that looks like, you know, going out into the community or looking at representation in, in the healthcare workforce, uh, that kind of perspective, I think is really, really valuable to make sure that that clinicians and, and folks are, are getting exposure to, because those people know it the patients and, and those in the community know it better than uh, any of us. So what are some of the different ways that disaster, whether it's climate related or not, can affect pregnancy and birth and what happens afterwards? Yeah, so I I would use an example. There's, there's several different uh, ways that it impacts. Um, one of the stories that always sticks with me is the story of a particular uh, single mother of three uh, during Hurricane Harvey. And her story for me really, I think, draws out the the impacts of disasters in a, a pretty clear way. Um, this woman's name is, is Dorothy Jones, and she had her apartment completely inundated during Hurricane Harvey in, in 2017. They were living in a waterlogged home. There was mold crawling up the, the walls, and her whole family, herself and her, her young children, were struggling with asthma as a result. Uh, Dorothy was pregnant at the time, and she said that her doctors even suggested inducing early to treat the unborn baby for uh, mold exposure. And she didn't have a safe place to care for the baby, so she opted opted not to do that. But she was she was trying to care for her children, trying to do her best, but living in a a place that was you know teeming with mold. Um, and and I think that is a a story in my mind. Uh, Dorothy's experience for months 
during and after Hurricane Harvey that for me highlights the ways that we've really failed to reach those who need the most help after disasters. Uh, she was turned down um, for housing assistance from FEMA because the apartment was deemed livable, which I think is a, a bureaucratic failure, um, clearly, and, and wasn't able to get the support that she received and, and her, her health and the health of her family suffered as a result. So I think that's, for me, that, that story uh, really draws out one of the, the potential impacts of disasters, but also underscores uh, the kind of failures in the disaster recovery process that we really need to address uh, if we want to see, uh, want to prevent people's health from being impacted. One of the most uh, striking things that Emmy points out um, or pointed out as we were developing this was that, you know, FEMA has guidance on pets, but not pregnancy. And it's just so, um, you know, endemic, this uh, failure to recognize pregnancy as a vulnerable state. Um, Because I think there's something about pregnancy where we're like somehow less empathetic because we're all born or something and we see pregnant people everywhere. But Mm. it's 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 so odd that, um, you know, when you're pregnant biologically and sociologically, you're um, vulnerable. You're going through a lot of changes and the kinds of changes that really benefit from societal support. Um, and what part of the insidiousness that we see is because there's direct effects in some of the things that Emmy just described about Dorothy and then indirect effects like, you know, for COVID-19, we spent a long, t- long time trying to think about how COVID-19 specifically and directly impacts pregnant people. But the indirect effects were an order of magnitude, almost more damaging in terms of prenatal care getting suspended or, um, you know, some of the challenges around having to give birth without uh, doula's present or uh, partner's present. Even a partner, right. I'm really glad that you brought up that research, Neil, because this was this was actually a study that Human Rights Watch did. Um, the the senior women's rights research there, um, her name is Sky Wheeler, and she looked at, her and her team looked at over 100 emergency preparedness plans from various jurisdictions and, and found the word pregnancy, I believe it was two times, pregnancy or pregnant, uh, while pets were mentioned 30 times. So if, if we're looking at our, you know, back to your point, Neil, about societal values, what does that say about how we're preparing for and responding to disasters just by the weight of, of how we're thinking about those two different populations? You wrote that, I'm quoting here, It's no coincidence that places most vulnerable to disaster are disproportionately populated by people of color. Why is that? There's several reasons for this, Pat. You know, I think two of them, you know, first of all, thinking about going back to redlining and several different government policies that that Neil was talking about earlier. So hang on one second. For people who don't, redlining is what? It's kind of an amorphous concept. A term that's thrown out there. Absolutely. So redlining is the process of city planning and specifically relating to accessing uh, loans on homes that basically influenced the way that uh, cities were developed and kind of meant that redlined areas were areas that were no-goes or, you know, not good um, for bank loans. And it was a completely racist policy because those that were deemed um, in this category were were Black and and individuals of color. Um, And what that meant is that they lived in the less nice, less developed parts of a city, um, specifically thinking about environment impacts 
typically these were in the floodplains. So they were more likely to live in floodplains um, as a result of, of redlining, um, particularly if you're looking at cities and communities all along the coasts. Um, the most vulnerable, low-lying areas are the places where nobody wants to invest. It was maybe uh, not the most uh, desirable place to, to, to live. And so you saw um, settlement there of, of Black communities. Um, I think you see a similar thing with American Indian and Native American communities where there's been a historical underinvestment uh, in tribal areas. And as a result, you see uh, far more vulnerability to wildfires and their impacts uh, than in other areas where there's been more investment um, in terms of planning and infrastructure. And just to speak to the systematicness of this, it, it's every city in America, it, you know, so, mm -hmm. and, and these really are local policies, but um, almost like a virus were replicated and have long legs. I, I had the uh, opportunity to be in Tulsa in May uh, for the 100 year commemoration of an event where uh, an entire neighborhood in Tulsa, Greenwood, was uh, raised to the ground, literally burned to the ground, um, and is still, like 100 years later, the place that struggles the most in terms of health outcomes and educational attainment and maternal health. Um, you know, and when you when you read about things like that in history books, it seems like something that happened 100 years ago in the past. And there's, you know, when you think about sordid episodes of racial violence, there's like you know, literally burning a neighborhood to the ground. And yet, 100 years later, because of these very policies that Emmys are speak Emmy was speaking to, we see that right in the heartland of the country. We see it in New York City. We see it in the Midwest. We see it everywhere. Absolutely. And there's a really interesting uh, kind of mapping of this that I believe it was Bloomberg did, where they took the the maps of the the kind of redlining from the 1930s and and they showed how the the housing discrimination mapped against uh, flood risk maps. And it's almost a one for one. I mean, you could just lay the map on top, and and it sort of shows this in real time. You could also take to Neil's point a map of of kind of educational attainment, life expectancy, and you. Would see the same sort of mapping. And so kind of that visualization, I think, is a really helpful way for folks trying to understand, you know, how these two things relate. You can literally see it in neighborhoods. They did this analysis across the country um, and in cities around the country. It was, it was really helpful for visualizing what we're talking about. You know, in the Northeast, people are calling Hurricanes Henry and Ida and the flooding that followed, quote, once in a generation storms. But they happened just a couple of weeks apart. Do we need to start recalibrating our understanding of disasters? Absolutely. And this is a this is a communication problem, I think, that that, you know, we in the climate change world need to really correct. We, you know, use these sort of one in a hundred year or hundred year storms. Um, you know, in the in the instance of flooding in particular, it's based on outdated FEMA maps um, that we really need to update. We have not updated our FEMA maps that show uh, flood vulnerability and flood zones, um, the floodplain areas since the 1970s and 80s. And I think we can all attest that the geography, the uh, topography has changed significantly since then. So I think it's in first of all, an updating of the maps to really show true flood risk. And second, a, a better communication strategy than using these 100-year floods, because that's that's the new normal that we're living with, as, as you noted. So it sounds like some people say that fighting climate change and achieving, you know, 
getting access to healthcare and health equity are they're they're personal, they're individual issues. But it sounds like you're saying maybe not. There are limits to what an individual can do, and these are really systemic issues. Yes. That's <laughs> um, the million dollars. I, I mean, that's the thing, Pat, Patrick. I mean, you asked a question, but you you stated it so well. 2021 is a year where we experienced all of these devastating climate disasters and are also still living through uh, a pandemic that's really changed everything about the way we live our lives. And the combination of those things should be an awakening about how we're all in this together and how, um, you know, there are some of us who are more vulnerable than others, but any of us can become that person. And it really requires going back to the fundamentals, again, of how we chose to construct our society. It was intentional and it is constructed. But those values were really based on the idea that any of us could be that person. And that's part of how and why we're all in it together. You know, that we're all in it together, I think, really was driven home by the beginning of the pandemic. But it seems to have gone haywire since then. It seems to have gone from we're all in this together to now we're two tribes. It's really tough to see the way that issues like public health and climate change get weaponized and politicized. Um, it's, it's really, really tough because I think in some of that discourse, there's nothing more pitched than talking about reproductive justice and then put it at the intersection of racial equality um, and gender equality and you know, sort of generational justice. Like the topic that we're, we're discussing is the spiciest of spicy topics. Um, and it makes it really hard to get to the substance uh, sometimes. And it's, it's really unfortunate that the discourse has become so pitched. I think we're also seeing, I, I'm at least optimistic from the climate change perspective, the more that folks are experiencing climate disasters, the harder it is to have that polarization. You know, I think it's, Climate change is at our doorsteps in the form of, of storms, in the form of fires. And those fires and floodwaters, you know, don't know geographic or political boundaries. They they impact, you know, everyone. You, you see them um, kind of Im- impacting no matter where you live or, uh, you know, what political party you ascribe to or whatever it is. I, I think the more that folks are experiencing those impacts, uh, the more we're going to see action and interest in in taking action on this issue. And we've already seen that, I think, in in kind of the actions and, and the interest that has happened um, in places like Florida and Texas and South Carolina. These are traditionally red states, but you see them having to be addressing and adapting to climate change because they have no other alternative. You know, I think people in parts of the country that don't think of themselves as being affected by climate change suddenly were last week. Um, Philadelphia, other places. So should everybody have a go bag? Do you guys have go bags? You know, Patrick, I I was talking to a friend in San Francisco or in the Bay Area recently about how, you know, when she was growing up, they didn't have like a firebox packed. And now, um, you know, the way that they live their lives, especially last summer, was like, you know, at any moment we might have to go. Um, your question at least gives me pause as somebody who's thought of themselves as living in a pretty protected part of the country. Emmy, how about you? You're in the, you know, I maybe you're not in Foggy Bottom or the lowlands of D.C., but... I, I do have a go bag, though, and I, I live on a 
higher level apartment, but I, I have one. Um, and, and I, you know, grew up originally in Colorado where same thing, like you said, Neil, I think growing up, um, my family never had a, a, a fire bag or, you know, in case of the wildfire, but Colorado has, has been experiencing wildfires and, and my parents do have a go bag now. Um, and, and I, have one just in case. Um, I, I think everyone should. And I also think, you know, to, to make the point about the, you know, birthing people, the population we're talking about, um, making sure that there are additional supplies for those particular needs is especially important. And there's guidance out there um, from HHS, from other sort of organizations about what that looks like and, and what you should pack in there. I, I highly encourage it. So let me ask a last question here. From the news the last year or so, it it sort of feels like climate-related things are going to get worse, that as climate change intensifies, so will climate-related disasters. And along with that, there are disparate effects on people of color. Is there anything that's going to make me feel more optimistic? Well, you know, we could all we could all use a little optimism these days, Pat. Um, I'll, I'll give you a couple things. You know, I'm optimistic about the momentum that we're seeing in tackling the issue for the for the first time, you're really seeing an urgency. Uh, we were just talking about how people who had not previously been impacted by disasters uh, were, and, and that changed their mindset. Uh, I think we saw with the IPCC report that came out, there was an additional urgency that was created there. I also think you're seeing it at the, the federal level. You know, I'm very hopeful by the new Office of Climate Change and Health Equity that was created uh, just a couple weeks ago in HHS. The fact that we are acknowledging that this is an issue we have to address and we're connecting the dots to the impacts on our health, the impacts uh, on, on justice issues is very promising to me. We have a lot of work to do, but I'm inspired by the fact that people are acknowledging it's an issue and we're starting to build the structures to address it. And I would co-sign everything that Emmy said and add a qualifier, um, which is that um, I'm really encouraged by the policy momentum, right? I you know, We spoke at the beginning about how we didn't even know maternal mortality was going up. Um, it was actually like in 2018 during one of the lar- like the longest furloughs I think our country's ever had, like or, right before that, you know, President Trump signed into law a bill that now we are tracking maternal mortality systematically. And that was a big step in the right direction, really low hanging fruit, but we're headed the right way. Since then, which was only a couple of years ago, we have a whole omnibus package of bills aimed at maternal health that include uh, that, you know, uh, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood is is leading um, that include a bill that is about, you know, climate change and maternal health that we point to as a policy prescription in our piece. Um, and we're at a point where very similar to having an office that's dedicated to climate change and health in, at HHS, um, the White House is platforming maternal health. So we've got a tremendous amount of momentum there. Our opportunity, though, across all of this is to figure out how to address this with a little more empathy for each other, <laughs> because I do worry about the tenor and pitch of this debate. And I know that this is part of how things work, that you know progress requires people sort of moving to extremes and really towing in at, at some level. But um, I think that we have to find ways to empathize with each other and uh, um, fundamentally get back to these principles that I feel like our country was built around of protecting each other and thinking about the most vulnerable. So this has been great. Thank you both so much. It's been interesting to see you talk with each other. And I can only imagine what your collaborations down the road 
will will bring us. The next time Emmy tells me that we should write something together, I won't take three months. I'll get right on it. <laughs> I'll hold you to that, Neil. Yeah, Emmy's like, it wasn't three months, Neil, it was like six, but... <laughs> Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcast. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.